You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. What would get more reaction, just in general? Hockey question, food question. You tell me, Jamie. I think we've seen pretty definitively that it's a food question, right? And now maybe it's because we go to the food question well less often. Because hockey is what we do, right? We talk about hockey. We talk about sports. So we get a lot of hockey questions that we throw out there. You know, people respond a lot to them, but they're very common. Food is a little more rare. So I think when we do throw out a food question, there's a kind of pent-up demand to really get into it. It's true. And it's also reflex with hockey questions eh, we think that it's reflex in this country but for the most part i think we have a very educated fan base and they like to think these things through and pour over you tell you ask somebody about food they know right then it's not mm, yeah i'm not sure let me just think about the food no 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 man i throw out something like everything bagels you know whether you like them you know whether you don't whether they're overrated whether they're elite everything bagel as I said before, most overrated. We can't read all of the bagel takes. There are so many of them. The volume is somewhat overwhelming. 650, 650, or 960, 960. But I'll make an exception for this one. Come on. You guys have never started the day with a cinnamon raisin bagel dressed with strawberry cream cheese and a triple-triple to wash it down? You're buzzing for the rest of the day. Dude, that's an aggressive, aggressive game plan. It is. That. That is wake-up, crack Red Bull from the get-go kind of game plan. First of all, I will say, no, I have not. I have never done that, so you're nope. correct in that one. But also, the you're buzzing for the rest of the day. I think the triple-triple has a lot to do with that. And I, I don't know what size triple-triple you're downing there, but uh, based on the rest of the order, I'm guessing it's a large. So, yeah, I, I don't know if it's so much the cinnamon raisin bagel there that's getting you buzzed as it is the triple-triple. I love this. People respond more to food because you guys have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> when it comes to food. Your sport, sports knowledge is good, though, and we as listeners rarely need to tell you you're being stupid. Food, however, is not your strong suit. All right, we'll leave it there then, but you are still welcome if you would like to comment on the everything now, bagel or other bagels in between. Hold on, Scotty. That The one thing that that texture got wrong is that uh, people rarely feel the need to tell us we're being stupid about mm. sports. That, that is incorrect. That is yeah. incorrect. Yeah, that's a fair point by you. That's a fair point by you. <laughs> we put some of those texts on the air. We just don't put all of those texts nope. on the air. Training camp continuing for the Vancouver Canucks, the Calgary Flames, the Edmonton Oilers, and the like. Anything big that breaks, we will get it to you throughout the course of the day. Is there any update on Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes? No, absolutely not. They are skating in Michigan. I suppose the update is Brady Kachuk has joined them. The yes, RFA Kachuk. Yeah, the RFA posse has grown by one. All of the RFAs are hanging out together, uh, plotting about uh, who knows what. But, yeah, they're all hanging out. They're having fun. They're skating together in Michigan, not We're signing contracts with their respective teams. Anybody could have. Yeah, they're the best <laughs> friends. Yeah, they are the best friends. Maybe that's what's going on. I don't think it's quite the hangover. I doubt that's how they're they're training in Michigan, but that's the update there. There is some update in the Jack Eichel situation. I consider it at least some type of news. It gives us a better indication of what the asks are for some of the teams. I thought Nip Kiprios' tweet today gave us a little light on that, that Jack Eichel and his camp, hey, they're willing to go anywhere. It's not, well, we'll only go to this market, we'll only go to that market. They're at the point where, look, I just want to get this surgery. I want to get going. The interesting part in Kiprios' tweet this morning, Jamie, is that Eichel's camp, they'll go anywhere, but the teams that are inquiring, he said there's a half dozen teams 
that are interested. There, if, if the Buffalo Sabres are willing to include some conditions attached to this trade, and that's probably around picks more than anything else, not around prospects. Well, we'll give you our first prospect if. No, no. You're going to get the players you're going to get in this package that you want. Yeah. But your picks can either be upgraded or downgraded based on a few conditions. Kiprio saying things like whether it's games played, scoring, et cetera. These are the types of things that inquiring teams are saying, well, look, we know we're assuming the risk here, and to mitigate against that risk, we don't want to tell you you're getting a first-round pick if the player isn't able to perform his duties in a healthy manner. Yeah, and you understand that from the acquiring team's perspective because Buffalo has really put themselves in a tough position here by not finding a way to resolve the stalemate about his health one way or another. They've created a situation where any team that goes out and trades for Jack Eichel is taking on a lot of uncertainty about the player's health. So I get it from an acquiring team's perspective, but man, as I said earlier, it's just, it's such a complicated deal. I don't know even what kind of conditions you could put on these picks that would satisfy everyone involved and would kind of bridge the gap between the Sabres and other teams. Like, okay, that's great. We want to do some conditional picks, but... I, I don't know what conditions you put on here that make everyone happy. Based on logic to me, Jamie, if you read what Kiprio said and you start thinking about it from those teams' perspective, and if you're you're an acquiring team, you say, okay, we want to put conditions on it, it feels like it would have to be for, let's say, a 2023 first-round draft pick is in play. Yeah. It would have to be on something like that because with this season and the window of recovery that there might be with this procedure – you can't accurately determine how many games Jack Eichel's going to play this year. It feels like it would almost have to be for the next season. Like, okay, if he plays 50-plus games, then you get yeah. that first rounder. But if he's unable to play 50 games, we can't be giving you a first rounder here. That goes down to a second rounder. Is that a reasonable ask or not? To me, that is reasonable, right? Because if you trade for Jack Eichel, you need to have some sort of confidence that he's going to be able to stay on the ice, right? Because otherwise, you've just acquired a massive liability for your franchise. And I know there's LTIR, but it still costs money and all of that. If he can't be on the ice on a consistent basis, and you give up this boatload of assets and future picks and prospects and all of that, that's not a good situation at all to be in. Of course, teams are going to want to protect themselves from that eventuality. But you're right, it does have to be minimum like 2023 focus. Maybe if there's a 2024 pick, you get some conditions placed on that one as well because there's just no way to know what kind of impact, what kind of, you know, how many games he's going to be able to play in this season. And again, then then you're forecasting things, you know, multiple years down the road potentially. And it, it just adds another wrinkle to an already extremely complicated talk, negotiation. Oh, it's complicated, all right. There's no question about that. It's Scott Rentoul. It's Jamie Dodd. Keep those texts coming in throughout the course of the day. We will get to them. I did want to get into a little bit of baseball talk, though if you want to continue to get in on that conversation we were having about the player who might be the Sam Darnold of the NHL this year, a guy that a bunch of stock has been sold on, but you could see having a good year and people look at him entirely differently. I think Jesse Pugliarvi is a really good example of that last year. Do you see a guy like that in the National Hockey League this year? Hit us up, 960-960-650-650. I haven't laid the numbers out, as I promised I would last hour, so I'm going to get to it right here. Jamie, they played 153 games over the past 25 weeks. It now comes down to nine games. 
Nine games remain for all of the teams. The Red Sox lead the wild card chase right now. The Yankees have the second spot. Toronto is next. Toronto is one game one game back of New York. That's three games back of Boston. Seattle's two games back of New York. The fading Oakland A's, courtesy those Seattle Mariners, which just swept them, the A's are four games back of that Yankees. Now, here's the series as they set up, and a very disappointing night for the Blue Jays, who had none of those teams in front of them playing and could have made up a half game, instead lost a half game in this race, and so that's where we are today. The Red Sox and the Yankees, they begin a a three-game set tonight in Boston. The Jays are at the Twins for three more. Mariners play the Angels, and the A's host the Astros. The only thing that matters to the Jays and Mariners, win your games. No matter what happens in Boston this weekend, you have the opportunity. If you take care of your business, you will make up ground on one of those two teams in front of you. And depending which way that series swings, you might be able to leapfrog one of those teams in the wild card standings. Just win your games. I hesitate to call them must-win because mathematically they are not, and the Blue Jays in particular have a series against the Yankees next week. But if you're going to talk about strength of schedule and you're going to talk about winnable series later on and it's not the Tampa Bay Rays, it's it's really hard going to Tropicana Field. Take care of your business. Yes, that's the job for the Jays. They did not do that yesterday. As you said, they could have pulled level with the Yankees for that second wildcard spot. They failed to do so. You got to take care of your business. You got to win these games against lesser competition. And as you say, because the Yankees and the Red Sox are playing each other, the Jays in particular are in a really strong position, right? If they go out and win their games against Minnesota, pretty much by definition, you're going to be, you know, tied at worst for a playoff spot, depending on how that Yankees Boston series goes. Then you get into next week where you have what's setting up to be just an absolutely pivotal, truly must win series against New York. But you don't want to be going into that series, having to make up ground on a playoff spot, right? Because then you feel the pressure. You might need to sweep, you know, yeah, it's a must win series anyways, but if you're, if you feel like you have to go for the sweep, that's a whole other level of difficulty and ask. So this is still, you know, it's been bad the last couple of nights. And as you said earlier, you know, the pitching hasn't been great, but they still have a chance to set themselves up very well going into that Yankees series next week. Okay, Jamie, you're a Jays fan. I think Mariners fans could look at it the exact same way because all of a sudden Seattle's a lot closer than we thought they were going to be with nine games remaining to go in the regular season. How do you want that Yankee series to go in an ideal world? To be perfectly honest, I would go Red Sox sweep of the Yankees, right? Because just eyes on the prize, get into the postseason. That's the goal, and that's the the team you're chasing right now is the Yankees. So have them drop as many games as possible. The alternative is obviously the the opposite way. The Yankees sweep the series. You go into that series where you can take care of your own business against New York next week, one game back, and tied with Boston, and now you've got two options. Yes, and I understand that. And I think the best possible option is a sweep in either direction, right? That's the best possible option, I think, clearly. I would rather have the Red Sox sweep, though, again, just to make it easier to track down that one playoff spot. And I get your argument because that potentially brings two postseason spots in play for the Jays, but I don't know. Maybe I'm playing it too conservatively. I would go for a Red Sox sweep. Do you want to know what's weird about this Jays team? And and maybe maybe this is part of the reason that – because your logic is very sound here. 
right? The Yankees lose all three of these games. The Jays take care of their own business. Now they're up on New York going into that series. You've got a little more leeway to play with in that series. The Jays have seemingly played better when they're in a chase position as opposed to owning one of those two wildcard spots. Is that fair? Yeah, so far that's been the case for sure. They've never been able to build any separation when they have moved into one of those wildcard spots. What a weird night. What a weird night. Minnesota's not very good, so there's the result that's kind of weird and you get smacked 7-2 in a game where you had 11 hits and four walks and you were only able to get two runs given the the arsenal that the Jays can roll out offensively. But then Lourdes Gurriel Jr. gets his hand stepped on in the outfield by his teammate center fielder Randall Gritchett. It's one of the more bizarre plays that I have seen in a while, man. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen where the ball goes to the gap, one of the players picks it up, and the other player directly in front of the guy who picked up the ball goes to the ground kneeling, and the guy throwing the ball is so urgently in need to get rid of it that he can't even move over a little bit, and he steps on the hand of his teammate while he is throwing the ball back into the infield. I have never seen that before. I will confess I have never seen that before, and it just contributed to the feeling of, are you kidding me? Like, Lourdes Gurriel's been one of their best hitters recently. He's been on fire at the plate, and now I know the – the x-rays came back negative, and the Jays were calling it, look, great news. I don't know if he'll be in the lineup today, but overall, very positive news. But watching it at the time, you're just thinking, they're going to lose this game and lose Lourdes Gurriel Jr. on a completely freak, bizarre play, thanks to Randall Grichuk, who's already you know a bit of a scapegoat for a lot of Jays fans. It felt awful. Boy, did it ever. And I just checked with a few doctors in between seeing that last night and this morning's show. Apparently, for Major League players, hands are important. Hands are important (laughs) if you're going to be throwing the ball or hitting. And those are two things that Lourdes Gurriel Jr. needs to do. I'm glad that the x-rays were negative. It's a couple of stitches. Hopefully it's okay. What a bizarre play. Weird night. It was just one of those nights where, like, if if you don't like injuries... Last night was no good for you. Christian McCaffrey gets hurt. I think it's great for Chuba Hubbard. That's not how I wanted him to get an opportunity in the NFL. We're all rooting for the Canadian kid to get it done in Carolina. But Christian McCaffrey goes out of that game last night. A couple weird injuries in that Thursday nighter, man. Oh, yeah. And as you said, the Thursday nighter is, you know, we've seen that before, right? Coming off short rest. Guys pick up injuries in that game, and we know why the NFL loves to play those games because they get the spotlight, and even Carolina and Houston becomes a big talking point because it's on Thursday night. But and also at a certain point, yeah, you kind of can't help but notice guys' bodies don't hold up very well in that game. Hamstring injury would be one of those things that, oh, he needs a little more yep. rest before the next game. You know my frustration with this, and, yeah, it's compounded by him being one of the stars of the game and a lot of people in fantasy football Yourself included, Jamie, not too thrilled with what you saw last night? No, I was so thrilled. I, in two of my three leagues, I landed the first overall pick. And, of course, you, got, you know you know there's injury risk, right? He was injured last year. I understand that. But there's no other play. There's no one else you can pick. You have to pick Christian McCaffrey there. And, you know, he wasn't – he didn't go off the charts in the first two weeks because I don't think he scored a touchdown yet this year. But just they give him the ball constantly. He gets so many touches of the football that he ends up putting up really impressive point totals even if he's not getting in the end zone. It's just – Oh, come on. I, I was so excited to have this guy in my lineup this year. Now he's out. It's 
It's no fun. Fantasy football, man, it's the worst. Why do we do sounds it? Like, sounds like he'll be out for a few weeks based on the report that came through today. You're a concern, of course, if either you're a Panthers fan, which would be pretty random for anyone to be. Maybe you jumped on board with Chuba Hubbard going there. Or you're a Christian McCaffrey fan. The worrisome part is that last year he had an injury that was supposed to keep him out for a few weeks, came back, and he got hurt immediately yep. again and missed the rest of the season. So you're crossing your fingers right now. What did you make of this news then when it comes to short rest? I don't know if you're happy about this as a television viewer or if you're worried about it because you happen to support one particular team. Super wild card weekend, as they called it last year. Hey, we've got three games on each side now. AFC, three wild card games. NFC, three wild card games. We're giving you six on wild card weekend. We used to only give you four. Okay, football fans pretty happy with that development. What about this? There is going to be a Monday night game on wild card weekend. That's what they're doing with the NFL this year. Two games going on Saturday, three games on Sunday, and then there will be a Monday night game, which means you're going to have at least a couple, or sorry, you're going to have one team, Jamie, that has that little bit week shorter rest going into the following weekend in the divisional round. You are, yeah, and I know I've seen already people point out how important, you know, because there's already situations, right, where if you're playing on Saturday, uh, going into Wild Card Weekend, right? You've probably played. You've played on Sunday the week before, so that's short rest. But the other team is in short rest as well. So I've already seen people pointing out how much this could impact the playoffs. It's an interesting argument. I like it personally to get that Monday night game on Wild Card Weekend. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to wrap up the weekend. I know the allure of the back-to-back triple headers on Saturday and Sunday is pretty strong, but we still get a triple header on Sunday. So I'm willing to give up that early Saturday game in exchange for a Monday night game. Are you thrilled with the Monday night game or no? With the Monday night game? Like yeah, in for, wild card weekend? Forget about the triple header part of it. Are you happy about the Monday night yeah. game? Because that's the bigger complaint. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm happy with the Monday night game. Might depend if your team's in it though. Yes, it could. Absolutely. Because you know, if you get through that, you've got a team that's, probably fresh and waiting for you the next weekend i don't know how they're going to do all of the scheduling for it maybe the team that gets a buy with boy is it valuable now we talked about how valuable it was in the past it's even more valuable now i don't have a big problem with it there's still people who think it's too much of a competitive advantage i want the regular season to mean even more i'm fine with it you know my policy on this jamie i want week 17 week 18 i want those to matter and because of what's at stake they do matter for the most part. It's tough to run away and grab that number one seed. Before, when it was top two, that came down to maybe that second one, but usually the team was home and cooled. I'm okay with this format. Is it too much of a competitive advantage, though? No, I don't think it is. Winning your conference in the regular season should have a significant competitive advantage, right? Because you want the regular season to mean something. I I don't like the idea that, okay, you know what? Everyone made the playoffs, so we should try to make it as equal a footing for you as possible. You all, we, we already are accustomed to the better teams getting certain advantages. Home field, most obviously. I don't have any problem with this. Getting the week of rest, and as you said, you know now another team might have a little bit of even a shorter week to prepare for the divisional round. To me, that's something all sports should be looking at. How do we make success in the regular season mean more and be more valuable come playoff time? This is what I've argued with the NHL. And for a lot of people, because they're traditionalists, it's an unpopular take. It's part of the reason that I think there should be that play-in round akin to 
the wild card in Major League Baseball. It doesn't yep. need to be a one game. I'd like to see a best two of three. And if you want to adopt what the NBA has done and say, okay, the team that's outside that top eight, they've got to win a couple of games, whereas the team that's the seven or eight seed, they only need to win one. Okay, I'm I'm here for that conversation. I want I want the jockeying for position to mean more. I really do. And it's t- I know it's tough to get into the NHL playoffs, and then with the way points are handed out, we often get those races anyway. I want it to be a little bit juicier. I do. And for a league that's looking to recover revenue, as we talked about with Bill Daly yesterday, I think we all know those games would do well, wouldn't they? Oh, they would do extremely, extremely well. We saw that in the NBA last year. They did fantastically well. Now you have LeBron playing Steph Curry, so that helps. But still, I think the format lent a lot to it as well. I mean, I would point to Major League Baseball. I think the two wild card setup in Major League Baseball makes a lot more sense than the old one wild card setup, right? And even though, yes. oh, people looked at it and, oh, it's expanding the playoffs and you're diluting the regular season. In that instance, you're not doing that at all because you're returning the importance of winning your division, right? Now, if you're the wildcard team, you got to play that dreaded coin flip one-off game against the other wildcard team, whereas at least if you win your division, you know you get to right, go right to the longer series. So that's the example I think more leagues should be following is put so put a make it worth something to win your division, to do well in the regular season. I think baseball is in a really good spot with that. I agree. I agree completely. And because of the way sports are viewed in North America – we often worry about the playoffs too much. We don't worry about the regular season enough. Make more games more meaningful. And the NBA and the NHL in particular, those are the two leagues where it's difficult to do. Baseball is the tradition of 162. There's always going to be that lag in the summer. Absolutely. But they've done something, in my opinion, to improve the game, to improve the importance of the regular season. I think the NHL should follow suit. The NBA is already on board. It's going to be, I think that's going to become more and more of a talking point and a question that leagues really start to think about because, you know, as you said, look, they're, they're trying to grow revenues, right? They're trying to make sure television ratings stay strong. And I think one of the things that could be really threaten that is if you have all of these games that people perceive as meaningless. And as you say, you know, we're, we've really, I think in the last... I don't know, however, however long you want to say, two decades, decade, whatever it is, people put so much of an emphasis on ultimate success in the playoffs that we've kind of all, as sports fans, started to devalue the regular season. I think leagues have to think about how they're going to stop that process, right? Because you don't want a huge swath of your regular season games for fans to just say, ah, who cares? Let me know when the playoffs get around. You have to think of a way to make those games important, make them meaningful for fans. Someone texts in, wild cards only work if the standings are closed. They should be able to cancel the NL wild card game this year. I wonder if that's spoken as a Dodgers <laughs> fan. I do wonder if that's spoken as a Dodgers fan because my quick counter to that is, no, the Giants and the Dodgers have to play now for the next week and a half. Yeah. They have to play <laughs> hard because there is a massive carrot sitting in front of whichever of those two teams emerges with the NL West. If the Dodgers feel so hard done by, or the Giants, or whoever feels so hard done by, by having to play in the National League wildcard game, a real, real simple solution. Win your division, you wouldn't be in that spot. It's it's that easy. Yeah, and we should reward teams that do it so well for six months instead of for this short stretch of time. I'm completely with you on this. You can hit us up, 650 we got some football going on tonight, and we'll talk about it with Derek Taylor next, right here on Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie Dot. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. 
Happy birthday. That album is 30 years old today, Jamie. Never mind. It's tough. It's tough to hear. Great to hear the song coming in. I love the album. Tough to hear that it's 30 years old. And logically, you know that. Logically, you know that. But when you hear something from Nevermind, you don't feel like it was 30 years ago. You feel like it's a little more recent. You don't feel like it should be classic rock to a lot of people out there, but to many it is. Yes, it certainly is. It certainly is. And it's, as I said, it's a... I don't know if an ego low is the right term or whatever it is, but it's always a little, oh, really? 30? 30 years old? That's what it was? Yeah, I don't know. Massive album. Everybody had it. And that was back in the day when you were actually purchasing a full yes. album and you had it, something that was a hard copy. <laughs> it wasn't just, uh, well, I'll download two or three songs. Yeah, see what it's like. No, I don't really like that one. I'll get, no, you had to invest. You had to go all in. And everybody had that. And then everybody had the... MTV Unplugged in New York Nirvana album as well. It's true. I would say also, never mind, great album. Holds up today. Extremely oh, it's well. Awesome. Fantastic to listen yeah. to to this day. I'm with you. Now, which is more groundbreaking? Is it Nevermind or is it Unplugged in New York? No, I would still say it's Nevermind. I hear you where you're going with the question, but Nevermind was and still is like so incredibly influential that I, I think it has to be that. Right, but Unplugged in New York was more about acceptance by the mainstream population, wasn't it? Because what was the argument against bands like Nirvana, the grunge era? Oh, wow, those guys just yell. There's no real music. They're just playing as loud as they can by those who didn't get it or if they were a certain generation. Unplugged in New York comes out. Oh, oh, they're pretty talented, I guess. Yeah, they actually have some musical talent. Who would have thought? Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, but I'd still give it to Nevermind. All it took was them covering a David Bowie song. That's what I got to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah yes. just one. That was the only one. It was really good. Some good content back in the day. It's Scott Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd. We'll continue to talk hockey as the morning progresses. Makes its way into afternoon, though it has for some on the eastern side of the Rockies. Anything that breaks, we will get it to you. We had people texting in. Hey, I just want to know if there's any update on Quinn Hughes and Elias Pedersen. Nope. Status nope. quo. A lot of people doing some fact-checking around the National Hockey League. I saw Pierre Lebrun, for example, t- tweet out today. Not much happening. Brady Kachuk's there now, so there's three guys. Three guys skating in Michigan waiting for their deals to get done. But as far as contract negotiations go, I... I, in fact, texted a source earlier this morning, and what I got back was a snail gif. That's what I got back. Things are slow. um, Not necessarily what Canucks fans want to hear, given that we're on day two of training camp. I think they would prefer it not be going at a snail's pace. I do want to say, though, because we get those texts in, right? You know, we talk a little football. We talk a little baseball. People, hey, why, why are you talking about this when Elias Pedersen and Quinn Hughes are unsigned? Rest assured, guys, rest assured, when the news comes down, we will get it to you ASAP. You are not going to be left wondering whether or not there is any news when, in fact, there is news to report. When the Brady Kachuk news comes down, you're going to hear it as soon as we get it because these are big deals and these are important players for their respective teams. And, yeah, there's that times two in Vancouver. But, yes, rest assured, we will get you that. We haven't provided very many Ryder Cup updates when do you start to really pay attention to the Ryder Cup? Or are you more of a highlights guy from the Ryder Cup? Or, you know what, if this is really close going into the final day, I'm tuned in. It's 3-1, by the way, for the U.S. over Europe after the morning session. 
Yeah, I, I love the Ryder Cup. I think it's a great event. I always really, really enjoy it. So I'm not sure it's even on TV here in Canada today, but certainly tomorrow when I get the chance, as I have time, I'll be paying attention and tuning in. I'm a big Ryder Cup fan. Do you care more about the results this morning or more about what you saw on that shot from Jordan Spieth, which is incredible? It's the Jordan Spieth shot. That is, it's one of the funnier and also impressive, but also funny golf shots that I've seen in a long time. For the people who haven't seen it, he's in the deep, deep rough, wedged up, basically like there's a almost a vertical drop from where the fairway in the first cut of rough is down, and then it slopes down towards the lake there on the course, and he's right up again. It's basically vertical Jamie, that he's looking up. Call it what it is. It's a wall. Like basically it's a wall. It's a wall. It's a, wall. It's, it's a natural wall with thick yeah. Thick grass. That's what it is. And he's trying to stand up against the wall and hit this shot out of the deep, thick lettuce. And because he is up against a vertical wall, he's almost horizontal the way he's standing, trying to get enough air under it to hit it up and get it onto the green. And he does. And it's incredible. I mean, it's an incredible recovery shot. He's about, I don't know, five feet from the pin when the ball settles. But the funniest thing about it is. The momentum of him taking the shot sends him kind of propelling backwards, almost stumbling slash running down the hill right into the lake, it looks like. And the camera cuts away just as he's really building up ahead of steam to show where the ball is going. And you think, oh my goodness, he's going to run headfirst into the lake. He's going to go right into the water. If he ran into the water, and there's a couple of events. There's one on the women's side. There's one on the men's side where that's your tradition. Like, after you win that event, you go jump in the lake. If Jordan Spieth had gone into the lake there, it's an all-time moment. Like, it's a really good shot, and yeah. we're not going to forget it anytime soon. But eventually, time will pass, and, oh, yeah, the Jordan Spieth shot. He goes into the lake, we're never forgetting it. No, it's he's a legend. Instant legend for that one. And that's really, watching it the first time, I was like, oh, my goodness. He's going to go right into the lake. Thought we might see a lake in Ottawa earlier this week in that game between the Red Blacks and the Tie Cats. That's my segue into Derek Taylor, who joins us. He'll call the game from the Riders' perspective tonight. BC Lions, Saskatchewan Rough Riders, BC Place. It's the only Western matchup here of the week, and DT joins us here on the line today. Derek, thanks for doing this, man. How are you? I'm doing very well. Can you guarantee it will not be a rainstorm like that Wednesday night football disaster? Can we guarantee that for tonight? We can, because they'll just close the roof in Vancouver, though the weather looks very yeah. nice, oh, cool. and, and probably the roof is going to be open, which would be a great thing for all involved. Yeah, uh, anything that doesn't look like whatever that was, that, that shambolic performance from both teams in that game. Th this one is going to be the antithesis of that, I fully believe it. I, I think this is a top five of all season CFL game tonight. I hope so, and we could use one after what we saw, as you called it, a shambolic mess on Wednesday night. What I can't guarantee is that if two quarterbacks leave this game, that there won't be overreaction, which I think there really was on Wednesday, to Ottawa losing its top two pivots and having to go with Nate Bahar at quarterback for a few snaps. Yeah, everybody is is all over. Well, it's got to be three quarterbacks. I was talking to Glenn Sooner yesterday. No, three, three quarterbacks. We need three quarterbacks. And a, a buddy of mine on Twitter kind of dug through it, and he's, it's one of his side projects. Since the 70s, he only found 15 occasions where a team needed to go to three quarterbacks because of injuries. So I, I, don't, I don't understand why you would waste a roster spot, honestly, on a third quarterback for the maybe once a season where a guy has to come in. Like, that's, I don't know. I, I, I don't get it. I'd rather have that guy be a linebacker who can make a special teams tackle or, I mean, in the case of the Riders this season, 
they lost two defensive backs in the in the Banjo Bowl, and they were down to we have no defensive backs other than this. We got to figure something out. Those are the roster spots to me that are more important than if you lost your first two quarterbacks, you're probably not winning that football game anyway. If you like, if if the Lions lose Michael Riley tonight, they're not winning the football game under any circumstances because Michael Riley is so good that it it just doesn't matter who number three is because number two is nowhere close to number one. Man, you just gave a lot of bulletin board material to Nathan Rourke, the Canadian pivot, who's the backup in BC. Uh, yeah. But Michael, Michael, come on. Let's all disagree. Currently, as it stands now, through seven games, uh, Michael Riley's the MOP of the CFL. Like, not turning the ball over. He he survived this, the opening game against Saskatchewan where he put some uh, absolute wounded ducks into the air and receivers bailed him out. But since then, He's on fire. What, what, what is he, 80-plus percent completion the last two games? Riley's the MLP of the league, and, and I, I, like, I like Nathan Rourke enough, but just um, the esteem I've had for Michael Riley for years is, is enormous. And to me, number two from Riley this season, well, maybe not super distant, but there's a gap between Riley and whoever's the number two quarterback in the league. He looked really good last week in particular. Some of his performance over the last three games could be discounted based on the fact that two of those wins were against Ottawa, and we know how bad that team is. Derek Taylor joining us here today, play-by-play voice of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. How much of a litmus test do you consider this for Michael Riley and the BC Lions tonight? Oh, this is this is it. This is, I mean, their wins have come against, what, two against Ottawa and one against Calgary, which that's not super impressive on its face. Those are three of their four wins this season. So this is, this is two legitimate teams. And as much as the riders are banged up and have had to make accommodations in the defensive backfield for injuries and for unexceptional performance, the riders are for real. And the riders have done it in a few ways. They've done it throwing the ball. And last week they just said, you know what we're going to do with the Argos? We're going to bludgeon them with a fullback and a lineman tight end. We're just absolutely going to destroy you. This isn't how we've done it before. Uh, and, you know, we've got other weapons than this, but we're going to do it with the run game. This, And then, man, how many touchdowns has BC allowed since the Saskatchewan game? Like three? This is this game is crazy. This is going to be fantastic. I'm so looking forward to it. And, Derek, these teams played a pretty interesting week one matchup. And, you know, we all remember the, the quarterback drama that played out before during that game for BC with Rourke and Michael Riley splitting the snaps in that one. How much of what we saw and what we maybe learned about both teams and how they match up in that game way back in week one is applicable to tonight's game? Now, we asked this of Cody Fajardo, and he said not very much. And while I get that, kind of what I was left from that game with was, okay, uh, BC can cover. That Pac-5 is really good. And their defensive line, which to me was a giant question mark, I saw some things that game where I went, okay, this boom, watch him, okay. I get it. He, he's, he's good, and currently I have him stripped in the league in quarterback pressures. Their linebackers look really nice as well. So uh, I, I honestly take quite a bit away from that game, and maybe nothing more so than, yes, the Riders abso- had a fantastic start, absolutely. Uh, but if not for a dropped interception by T.J. Lee and uh, Takara Yamasaki missing, what was it, three kicks that game, which would have been worth five points, uh, BC very well could have won that game. So I, I, I take away that the riders, you need luck to win in any professional sport. The riders had a little luck on their side that day to get away with a win. So I, I think, you know, it was a win, but, but was it, was it really? 
So if there's there's a real threat on the other side of the field tonight for them. You mentioned the BC Lions and their ability to defend the pass specifically. Cody Fajardo for Saskatchewan, he has the six interceptions through seven games played already this year. What do you think is behind that uptick in turnovers from Fajardo? That's a great question. Part of it to me is luck. Uh, there's there's a real thing within CFL quarterbacks when, uh, and this probably is all football, but sometimes you throw a ball and it's right to a defender and he drops it and you get away with one. Last year, Cody was a little lucky in that respect last season. He had half his passes, which were interceptable, actually intercepted last season. Well, this year, it's now two-thirds of his interceptable passes have been picked off. So, He's not necessarily putting the ball in harm's way more often. He's just getting, well, in fact, he actually is on a, on a per-play basis. It's also getting picked off more often. So that's been one of his things. Uh, part of it has, has been him talking, you know, about, hey, well, Winnipeg would show me one thing. And from what I saw, I would think, well, my number one option isn't going to be there. So I'm going to go to number two and number three. But then Winnipeg would change what they're doing. And actually, number one would have been a good play. He's, he's a little in his own head, and I think teams understand that Fajardo's a real threat. He's a real accurate passer. He's a real threat in the pass game. So we need to do some stuff, and Cody's now playing catch-up to their catch-up, if you know what I mean. And then the receiving court isn't what it was in 2019 because of injury, because of other things. So there's, there's a lot for you know Fajardo and the offensive coordinator, Jason Moss, and this offense to try to, to, try to do to, to help Cody keep from giving the ball away. Catch up to catch up, as long as he puts enough mustard on the ball, it should be just fine. Derek Taylor joining us here today as we get set for the Rough Riders and the BC Lions tonight at BC Place. Pretty clear who the class of the league is. We're not breaking any ground by saying it's the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Do you have a gut feel for which team is the best challenger for the reigning champs? Oh, I honestly, this game is going to tell me quite a bit, honestly. Um, So much of it is going to come down to who's healthy and who's not. And it's very demonstrable. The riders are not healthy, right? 14 guys on the six-game injured list, and I think four more on the one game this week, of, of which a couple are injured. Is BC, I mean, where's Brian Burnham at? Um, can Dominic Ryans come back this season and make an impact late when he didn't really make one early? And, you know, what, as I think of the roster, I don't think of too many injuries getting in their way other than uh, right tackle. And then obviously the receivers, that we've named. This game to me will, will honestly tell me a lot. If BC wins the season series against the Riders, goes to five and two, I'll think, oh, okay. They've, they've had this going in their favor. They've got a great coach who knows what it takes to win titles in this league. Uh, I, I'm going to think BC is the number two in my power ranking should they come away with this. I'm a little out on Toronto after what I saw last week, and now Arbuckle is hurt. Uh, so it's, it's one of BC, Toronto, and Saskatchewan, and tonight goes a long way to, to give me my answer. Bo Levi Mitchell doesn't look like himself, and he's dealt with injury this season in Calgary. Mike Riley's played really well of late. We all know he's getting a little bit older. Trevor Harris is hurt. Do we have a quarterback issue right now in the CFL as we look beyond this season and for the seasons to come? Riley's 36. I think Zach Caleros is is back to his 2015 version. So I think he has been fantastic. Fajardo looks – Fajardo doesn't look as good as last year. I don't know if we – I don't know if we have a problem. Ottawa has a, Ottawa has a very big problem. Um, Hamilton, 
I think they. I think Hamilton has a a, a bit of a problem because I, I'm not even in on Dane Evans, uh, much less the other two guys that they've been putting out there. Vernon Adams, the league wants to love him, but he does not love completing passes at this level. He he'd rather yolo the ball deep and have at it. I think we're in an okay spot, but we're not where we were a couple of years ago, where I felt so much more comfortable, or even 2019, where I was still willing to believe that that Bo was this elite level quarterback. It we're on the verge. I, I 2022 could be could be very telling if Bo doesn't figure this out and, and why every ball is going to a defender and why he leads the league in interceptions, oh, boy, it's, it, it, it could get interesting. It could be dramatic in Calgary. Well, and there are cases to be made for other players. Like Jake Mayer looked very good in his two appearances with the Calgary Stampeders, but that's not a real body of work to evaluate him on. And there's some other young quarterbacks we might be able to talk about potential on. The reason I bring it up is because I'm with you. 2019, we felt a lot better about the state of quarterbacking in this league. I wonder if we mm. underestimated how much one year off and one year more on the odometer it meant for guys like Mike Riley, Trevor Harris, Bo Levi, Mitchell, and we got there a lot quicker with the overall quarterbacking situation in this league than I certainly would have believed. Yeah, the Trevor Harris one is interesting because his accuracy numbers remain good, but again, there's a guy who did not put the ball in harm's way in 2019 and is doing it a whole bunch of times this season, whatever Whatever is different, right? Harris is one who I thought, okay, when I think of the elite quarterbacks in the league, and this is me going into the year, okay, Riley, Bowley by Mitchell, that's tier one. Let's call it a day. Who's in tier two? And I, I thought Trevor Harris was maybe on the verge, and I thought Edmonton had got him enough weapons to the point where, oh, okay, now it's Trevor's time. And it has not been because that Elk team is a, just a nightmare for anybody who's, who's backed them this season. Uh, yeah, and I mean – a lot of these guys are not young, too, right? Obviously, Riley isn't young. Trevor Harris isn't particularly young either. So, yeah, and, and what's, what's the next generation? Jake Mayer, okay, yes, I've enjoyed that. Taylor Cornelius goes in for Edmonton. He, that dude, put balls in harm's way all the time last week. Is, is that the future of the league? Duck Hodges in Ottawa? I don't know anything about Duck Hodges, but... I, I I struggle with Duck Hodges being the savior of the Canadian Football League. We're we're at about an interesting inflection point with our quarterbacks. Toughest position to find in all of the sports, so it's no surprise that this comes up every once in a while. DT, have a great call tonight, man. Really appreciate you taking the time on the show today. Should be a great one at BC Place tonight, the only mat, uh, Western matchup of the week. Oh, it's going to be good. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. That is Derek Taylor. He does the sports cage, CKRM, and he also is the voice of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. We mentioned this last week. Bears mentioning again. Fantastic initiative, Jamie, tonight at BC Place. The BC Lions, they will do their version of Orange Shirt Day for National Truth and Reconciliation, which is next Thursday in this country. They had an Indigenous artist redesign their logo with Indigenous artwork. They're handing them out to the first 10,000 people in the building tonight. The home team's orange. It works on that level, but, boy, this goes far beyond it. It's great. I hope other teams pick up on this over the course of the next week. Yeah, that's a good point, right, that you hope this becomes an example to follow for other teams. Everything that I've seen, the reaction to the event, the anticipation, people are really excited for this and really, you know, happy to that it's being done, happy to see how it goes. And I mean, as you heard Derek Taylor say, like this could be a really fantastic game as well. This is, is uh, this is an interesting one for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, both teams, 
there's a little something to prove here. Everybody's trying to get that, all right, we're the best team outside of Winnipeg, and we're going to be something in this second half. It's not going to be a runaway for the Blue Bombers. And these two are at or near the top of most people's list. The standings telling you that in the West, but even across the league, there's an argument to be made that either of these teams is the second best outfit right now in the Canadian Football League. Well, and certainly, I mean, one of them is going to come away tonight with a victory over a quality opponent, right? And as, you know, we kind of touched on in that interview, BC has done some of its damage against Ottawa, Calgary, so maybe you discount that a little bit. I also think it's fair to point out that Saskatchewan's played five home games and only one game on the road so far this year, right? So they're they're 4-1 at home and they're 0-1 on the road up to this point. So now they have a tough road test. I think as Derek Taylor kind of said there, you know, whoever gets this game tonight has pretty clearly established themselves as the second best team in the CFL. One other football note to get in before the end of this hour. I'm not sure anybody had thought about this guy for a long time. Josh Gordon. Remember he tried to come back with Seattle last year. He never got reinstated by the NFL. He is getting reinstated by the National Football League. He is eligible to play as early as week four. That reporting coming from Adam Schefter. He does not have a team right now. We'll see where this goes. We know how good Josh Gordon was early in his career. And he had obviously some off field issues to deal with i hope for his sake as a human being he's dealt with those let's see what the comeback looks like yeah for me with josh gordon it's always first and foremost a human story right before it is a football story because you just it's been such a winding road and such a roller coaster for josh gordon and you just hope that he's in a really really good place as a person not necessarily as a football player because you know that breakout season for josh gordon that's 2013 that's a long long time ago now and he's played games in in the nfl since then and you know had moments of of production and success in the nfl in the interim but if for me it's just okay i really hope that he is in a great spot as a person yeah if you know anything about his backstory and the substance abuse issues that josh gordon has has faced not to mention the mental health issues i'm with you 100 percent. let's just hope he, his life is in good shape and if football works out then it works so one other note to mention here did you see this the toronto blue jays they've got two home series next week after they're done with the minnesota twins they're going to host the yankees for three they will finish hosting the baltimore orioles they have increased capacity at rogers center to thirty thousand. wow for that homestand that was fifteen thousand before they have doubled it up in toronto there are a lot more people who hope the blue jays are in the postseason chase and can track down that wild card spot, and they're going to get to go see it live if they want to. That's exciting. That'll make the games, even just from afar on TV, more entertaining. I think with 30,000, you know, I've actually been impressed with how loud the fans have been, even with the extremely reduced capacity of, what is it, just around 15,000, just under that, that they've had there uh, in Toronto. So with 30,000, I think that's going to give a really, really, a real sense of atmosphere, especially for that Yankees series, right? And, you know, if the Baltimore games are meaningful, you'll see it there too. But going up against the Yankees with the extra crowd, that's going to be a lot of fun. Scott Rentoul, it's Jamie Dodd. This is where we hand things off to Hockey Central 960 on the eastern side of the Rockies. They'll take you through what's happening at Flames Camp today, discuss some of the line combinations, what's happening as the Flames look forward to their first preseason action this weekend in Vancouver. We'll touch on the scrimmage the Canucks had today. 
get you through this final hour as well. Drew Doughty had some really interesting comments that I want to dig into, and they sort of relate to the question du jour. We'll get to those next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Good choice. That's a good choice right there. I did not realize this album came out on the exact same day that Nevermind was released 30 years ago today. Jamie, this, of course, Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Not bad. Not a bad day of uh, new music releases back in 1991 there. Greg didn't tell me which song was coming, so I was reacting as you all were in real time. I'm trying to right now determine in my brain which of these albums I've played more. It's close. It's a dead heat. That's how much I enjoyed Nevermind. That's how much I enjoyed this album by The Chili's. For me, it is Nevermind, which is no disrespect to the Red Hot Chili Peppers whatsoever. That's just the one that I have had on heavy rotation for more of my life. You know that you've listened to a CD a lot or a tape way back in the day a lot or a record when you know which number it was. That's when you know. When you hear the song and you go, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. I believe that's song five. I believe that song... Suck My Kiss by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Correct me if I'm wrong, texters. I know you will. 650-650, Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. I believe that is the fifth song on the Blood Sugar Sex Magic CD. For me, the the test that you've when you've really got to know an album and listen to it a lot is when you hear a song from the album outside of that context, right? Just on, on the radio or somewhere else in your life, and it ends, and you immediately unconsciously just anticipate the next song on the album yes, coming up, right? Yes, you're, you're just, you just go right into it. You're like, oh, yeah, now I know what's next. Like, oh, wait, no, I'm, I'm not actually listening to the album. Every Big Shiny Tunes record ever. <laughs> Every Big Shiny Tunes song. I just automatically think of the next one. Not everyone for me. Big Shiny Tunes 2, that is your standard bearer right there. Yes, the Big Shiny I agree. Tunes series. I agree. Like, Big Shiny Tunes 2, I don't know what happened with 1. I probably can't name you which songs are on number 1. But when number 2 came around, that's the one everybody got on board with. That's the one you know better than any Big Shiny Tunes album that followed. Uh, I'm on the Wikipedia page right now, and Big Shiny Tunes 2 has a page. Big Shiny Tunes 1 doesn't even have a page. There that's what I'm talking so about. So there you go. Oh, there you go. They were still working out the kinks with Big Shiny Tunes 1. They were like, okay, we'll test this idea out. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, they nailed it. They nailed the formula with Big Shiny Tunes 2. It may have been the title Small Random Songs that led to its demise. That's what it was called. And then, you know what, guys? That didn't go so well. Let's call the next album Big Shiny Tunes. And we'll say it second because we're this. Yeah. We didn't do that well with the small, random songs, so let's go with Big Shiny Tunes. Let's see if we can hit that one out of the park. It's Scott Rintel. It's Jamie Daw. What a great day in music history. We're going to get some Canucks audio coming your way. There was a scrimmage this morning between the B side and the A side. We know they're all mixed up. We talked about some of the takeaways yesterday or how many of them they were, there were. A lot of our focus was on defense pairings, the fact that Nick Patan got to play between Besser and Hoaglander. I saw a lot of people drawing conclusions about duos. So do we believe that Besser and Hoaglander are a duo? And that's going to comprise the wingers for Elias Pettersson when he's going to be here. Now, if that's to follow, then does that mean JT Miller is a center to start this season? There were some willing to go there yesterday. I'm not quite willing to jump there. You? 
No, because I think partly what we're seeing is Travis Green reacting to the absence of Elias Pettersson, right? So you almost have to think there's two parallel trains of thought for Green and the rest of the coaching staff, right? There's what we want in an ideal world where Elias Pettersson is there for game one of the season and what we might have to do if that's not the case. And I think Besser and Hoaglander together, I think Miller down the middle, I think those are examples of the second scenario, right? Where this isn't what we want, this wouldn't be our first choice, but we're forced to react to circumstances because Elias Pettersson isn't ready to go. I think in an ideal world, I don't think they're playing JT Miller down the middle. I agree with you. And to me, the proof in that pudding is getting Jason Dickinson. Now, it'll be interesting if Brandon Sutter's not there for the start of camp and they decide to deploy it that way and go, you know what, we're going to really be deep down the middle. This is all, of course, assuming Elias Pettersson gets signed, he's ready to go, opening night, you've got your choices. That would be a hell of a move if you decided to go Pedersen, Horvat, Miller, Dickinson down the middle because Brandon Sutter's not ready to go. I lean to what you're saying. I lean to JT Miller playing the wing and then rolling out Pedersen, then Horvat, then Dickinson. Then make your choice on the fourth line depending on what you want that fourth line to look like. But I'll tell you, it's an option, and that's part of the attractive nature of this forward group this year. There's a bunch of different ways you can do it and not feel bad about it, not feel like, well, this is a desperation move to get this team out of a slump that it's in right now. And that's another reason why I wouldn't read too much into, okay, Besser's playing with Hoaglander. Are they going to be a unit to start the year? That kind of thing. Because because the forward group has so much more versatility and flexibility, it makes sense that Travis Green's going to try more things out in training camp, right? Because he might have that opportunity to do more more of that in the regular season. So why not get a sense of, okay, this might not be my first choice, but if I have to go to it at some point in the year, how do I like the look of that? I think we're going to see more of that this training camp just because of what you're saying. There is so much versatility to play with here. Which is probably the reason that I believe the general reaction among Canucks fans yesterday, and correct me if I'm wrong, nine, or pardon me, 650, 650. We're down to just the single stream text message inbox for this final hour. That's the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox, 650, 650. It's part of the reason, Jamie, I believe that there were disappointed Canucks fans yesterday when they saw a bunch of different combinations that they perhaps didn't expect. Oh, Besser and Hoaglander, okay. That's a thing right now. JT Miller's playing center, and he's with Connor Garland. Mm, okay, interesting that those two guys are on the same line, and Pod Colson's beside him. But I think Canucks fans were disappointed when they saw Bo Horvat with Tanner Pearson. They know what that baseline looks like, and I believe that if we were going to see some different combinations, most Canucks fans wanted to see one of those other wingers that I just mentioned in some of those other trios paired with Bo Horvat yesterday to see what that looked like. Yes, and Connor Garland in particular would fall into that category. That's a duo that Canucks fans have spent all summer hoping to see with each other, right? So I think there's a little bit of disappointment there. But in the in the case of Pearson, it's it's also disappointment because he is not seen as a particularly exciting high upside option to play with Bo Horvat, which is fair enough. That's not really his game at this stage of his career. He's much more of the reliable, dependable, solid defensively. That's the role. Who can also chip in some goals here or there? That's the role Tanner Pearson is going to be expected to play. But you're right. There was this anticipation of, okay, if it's going to be Horvat, it's going to be Horvat and Garland. That We know that. That's what a lot of fans thought. That's what I've thought for most of the summer as well. Horvat and Garland are going to be together on that second line, and then the battle is really for that third spot on that line with Hoaglander, Pod Colson, and Pearson. It did not play out that way at all in day on day one of training camp. 
This text comes in. Miller, Podkolzin, Garland as our second line is sick. Bo Pearson Mott is a good third, too. PD with Brock and Hoaglander. You want Bo Horvat being your third line center, Jamie? No. But it is a situation where, you know, this the the scenario you laid out, right? Where, okay, let's say Brandon Sutter's not good to go, and what they decide to do is Patterson, Horvat, Miller, Dickinson. You don't look at any of those first three guys as a third-line center, but in that scenario, someone's going to finish third in ice time. So you kind of have a de facto third-line center, even if you think all of them are better than that. But no, Bo Horvat is going to be playing on the second line in the top six for this team. Well, and here's the other part of that. If that's the center lineup you go with, which, hey, as we said, it's an option you could deploy, and boy, does it make you strong down the middle. Not only are you discounting the minutes for your third-line center, it means Jason Dickinson's not playing that much off the hop, and I doubt that this team's going to go that way and say, all right, Dickinson, you're our fourth-line guy, and maybe this fourth line plays a little more than others. Maybe he's on a wing in that situation. I'm not sure. I doubt that they're going to diminish the minutes unless there's a unless there's a specific reason that they need to for one of those yeah. four players. And, and as you lay it out there, okay, you move Miller to center, but you want Dickinson to get minutes, so you put him on wing. And I know they value the versatility of both players, but you know at that point you're changing the position of two players, right? Like why not just keep Miller on the wing and Dickinson at center, which are their more natural positions? I think that would make a lot more sense than than getting, you know, kind of overthinking it a little bit in the other scenario. And I will also say, rather than moving JT Miller to the middle, if, if you have to compensate for the absence of Brandon Sutter, I mean, they went out and signed a ton of viable AHL slash NHL depth for a reason, right? And I think part of the reason is, okay, we want to see, we believe that, you know, Nick Patan or Justin Dowling can step in to the lineup and fill that role for a few games if they need to, I think it's more likely that they would just rely on all that depth they accumulated in the summer. At least you've got these options to play with, and they're not crazy scenarios. Do you know what I mean? Like in previous years with this team, you'd go, well, if this doesn't work or if this guy was injured or if that contract doesn't get signed, here's a way you could go. And you don't really feel good about any of it. These are actually situations where you go, let me think about that for a second. Okay, I could see how you would do it. Here's the con, but there's a bunch of pros, and that's why this forward group in Vancouver is getting so much acclaim this year, at least on paper, compared to what it's been in the past. Scott Rentwell, Jamie Dodd, get those texts in, 650-650. That's the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Now, you and I laid out a question at the beginning of the show today, and I want to fire it up again. Because I want to ask you if this guy could somehow be in that category. Tanner Pearson. So he's not young, but I do believe Canucks fans know what Tanner Pearson is, or at least they think they know. And while they don't think that's a terrible asset to have on the team, they also don't see him as a second-line winger. Is that fair? That's very fair to say. Absolutely. Hey, if this team's going to be good, Tanner Pearson's playing on the third line. If this team's going to compete with some of the big boys, this this is a player who should be on your third line. That is generally how Tanner Pearson is labeled. Now, he's a streaky scorer. We've asked about the guy that you've sold some stock on, but you could see stock rise. Is Tanner Pearson a potential candidate for something like that? 
He is in the sense that a lot of Canucks fans have sold stock in him. And I think it's fair to say at this point that Tanner Pearson is probably underrated in Vancouver. I just don't know that you're going to see the massive discrepancy in where his stock is and the kind of production he puts up. Like, I think he'll be better than how a lot of fans have him pigeonholed, but that might mean, you know, 15 goals in 80 games this year, right? I would characterize that as a successful season for Tanner Pearson, but I don't know he's gonna have, that he's going to have, have the kind of numbers where people look at it and say, oh, wow, I was really wrong about Tanner Pearson going into the year. Texter, right away, Tanner Pearson reminds me of an everything bagel overrated, and this texter <laughs> says overpaid as well. Is Tanner Pearson overrated? I don't know that he'd be the equivalent of the everything bagel. I think that Tanner Pearson would be just like a standard bagel where you go, okay, I know what I'm going to get from that. Like, what's your expectation for Tanner Pearson this season with the Vancouver Canucks as far as production goes, Jamie? Yeah, as I said, like, if he's healthy, 15 goals, right? That's that's probably about what I'm expecting. You know, you, you really? figure he's not getting many power play opportunities. It, he's going to be probably going between the second and third line. That's about where I would expect him to slot in, 15 to 20. Yeah, I would have said 20. I think the standard for Tanner Pearson with what he's being paid with this hockey club and if he's going to be skating with some of their decent forwards, which we expect him to, I would say the standard for Tanner Pearson is 20. That's that's my expectation for standard for Tanner Pearson. You tell us in listener line, like what is your expectation given what you know about the track record? Given that Travis Green yesterday jokingly said, could Bo play with Pearson? Yeah. And he kind of laughed. Yeah, maybe that might happen. Like, you guys have seen this before. You have a pretty good idea of, of how much I like that duo together. I expect 20 goals from Tanner Pearson. And look, if he is riding shotgun with Bo Horvat and Connor Garland for the majority of the season, then all of a sudden you do scale it up to 20 goals, right? Because that's a really good situation for a winger and especially a veteran who, who, you know, he, as you said, he's streaky, but he's got such a good shot. He can do a lot of things along the walls and in puck battles to help out Horvat and Garland. Okay. If, if that's the unit that we see on the second line, getting second line minutes and offensive opportunities for the whole season, then yeah, 20 goals does become the expectation. I just don't know that it's going to be that consistent for him to get that opportunity because I think Hoaglander, I think Pod Colson are really going to push for those shots too. Tanner Pearson, 20 goals. Seems about right to me. I don't know exactly which bagel he is. I think it's a pretty standard bagel, but you can weigh in on that as just the well. Plain, the plain bagel, is that fair? Is that Maybe. is that too harsh? Like you're like, like, no. I, I like a plain bagel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you know exactly where it falls. It's not your favorite, but yeah. there's an expectation level that comes with it. I'm not trying to discount the player. You just kind of know what it is. So do you, it's old do you reliable. consider yeah. So okay, so if we have that as the standard for Tanner Pearson, we're having this conversation that we laid out earlier. That guy that like Sam Darnold was the genesis for this question. Sam Darnold coming out of New York, people went, I don't know. I've seen it for three years, and I know the Jets are the Jets, but I'm kind of out on Sam Darnold. I'm not sure what's really there. He's not an MVP candidate, but Sam Darnold's looked pretty good for Carolina. And I think there's a lot of people who said, okay, maybe I'm willing to buy stock in this player again. Maybe he is more than I thought. What would Tanner Pearson have to do from a scoring standpoint to you, for you to think about him this way after this season? 25 to 30, something like that. That would probably have the goal, goal total for, for Tanner Pearson and doable. You know, you never know. If someone gets on a hot streak with their shot, he's got a really effective shot. You never know. But that's probably the level we're talking about to really make me rethink my position on Tanner Pearson. Are the most obvious candidate, 
candidates on this team for the category we're talking about, Oliver Ekman, Larson, and maybe more of a long shot for this, Ole Ulevi? Yeah, an Ole Ulevi is probably a little bit closer to the Sam Darnold example. Now, it's different because Ulevi has just had trouble establishing himself in the NHL, right? But he's still that young player with the draft pedigree who a lot of people have written off, in my mind, pretty understandably. I'm, I'm skeptical that he's going to uh, be able to carve out much of an impact role at the NHL level for the Canucks. So I would I would have Ulevi there as a guy who has a chance to you know, potentially prove a lot of people wrong that have written himself off, written him off, myself included, to a certain extent. And and then Oliver Ekman Larson is the other obvious one. And that's a little different because I think it's different when you're talking about a veteran who's been at a certain level and then declined pretty significantly. Like I think that's a slightly different conversation. But OEL would be the other guy where a lot of people are down on him and he's a chance to prove some people wrong. Hey, bounce back candidate. And we've talked about a few yeah. of those around the NHL as well. And, and that's kind of what this is. It's a little bit different, but OEL is certainly in that conversation. And we get the text all the time, the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Some people saying he's absolutely going to rebound, change of scenery is going to be a big thing. And we get those who are very nervous. They didn't like the deal at the time. They're still not comfortable with it. And they don't think he's ever going to reclaim the player he was three or four years ago down in the desert. And I think you can build a pretty compelling case for both sides of that argument, right? And again, there's, you know, we've talked about this a little bit this week. You can, you, you kind of have to separate the contract, what he's going to do this year, what he's going to do in year five from the contract, right? Like evaluating the deal in total is different than trying to figure out what Oliver Ekman Larson is going to give the Canucks this year. But even just looking at this year on the ice, I think you could make a pretty sol- solid case in either direction. Joshua says the plain bagel is perfect for Tanner Pearson. It's plain. You know what you get, but it can be made better by things around it, like yeah. the nice cream cheese or, in Pearson's case, the right line mates. That's a really good analogy by Joshua. I really, really like that. Pearson can be elevated. He can be elevated by Bo Horvat and Connor Garland, much like a nice plain bagel can be elevated by what you put on it. That's a great analogy by Joshua. Aaron from Nanaimo says Pearson's like a cinnamon raisin bagel. It doesn't taste as good as it looks or smells. No comment. I don't know what to say about <laughs> Tanner Pearson's odor at this point based on that text. I don't know Pearson's how Tanner handsome, Pearson handsome smells. Guy, yeah, yeah, no, I don't know I, either. Can't, can't I, comment I, on that. I assume he's clean, and I have no idea if he's a cologne guy or not. I see where you're going with that, Aaron. We had a debate about the cinnamon raisin bagel a little bit earlier in the show today. Someone also texted, where do you guys stand on cream cheese? The veggie cream cheese is the absolute bomb, in my opinion. I'm not going to say cream cheese is overrated. I think it's fine. I think cream cheese is fine. I don't think it's – I do think there are certain cream cheeses that are better than others. I am an urban garlic cream cheese guy. Like, that would be a top-ranked cream cheese in – in my world, sun-dried tomato, also an excellent cream cheese. But let's put it this way. If I have my choice of spreads on a bagel, cream cheese isn't at the top. Okay. See, for me it is, and I'm a plain cream cheese guy. Cream cheese guy. Like, sesame seed bagel and a good smear of plain cream cheese, I'm in business. That's exactly what I want from my bagel. You didn't go garlic and herb there? What's wrong with you? I don't know. I like it. I like the classic. I like the classic style. I like to keep it just straightforward with my cream cheese. See, again, this will be a controversial take as well. 
I had a bagel for breakfast today. I had no idea this was going to come up on the show, but I happened to have one today. I go peanut butter over top of cream cheese. Wow. Yeah. Get that out of here. Absolutely no interest in peanut butter on a bagel. Like only in an emergency for me. Only in an emergency. Controversial take. Very controversial take. I did want to get this audio in. I was looking forward to playing it earlier in the show, and we were having this discussion about guys who could bounce back. Drew Doughty's in a different category than a bunch of the players we're talking about, Jamie. But fair to say opinion on Drew Doughty has shifted in the last two or three years? Yes, very much so. He was also on the 32 Thoughts podcast. We played that clip from Nathan McKinnon a little bit earlier. The top players in the game, the guys who stay at the standard for a really long time, they motivate themselves. And what they got talking to Drew Doughty about in the podcast is that like Mitch Marner keeps getting all this advice, and they keep asking about it too. But not just those two gentlemen, but a lot of people keep asking about, like, what's Mitch Marner got to do? How's he got to go? And, and everybody keeps coming back to that. He's got to tune out all the noise. Dowdy's not like that. Dowdy hears everything, sees everything, and he tries to use it. And here's Drew Dowdy on the podcast trying to talk about how he deals with his critics. One of my best seasons of my entire career. And uh, a lot of that was because of this noise I'm hearing of, you know, guys don't even have me, you know, as a top rated defenseman anymore. Oh, you're overpaid, this type of stuff. So, you know, it rattles me when I read it, but like it doesn't take me over or anything. Mm-hmm. Like I can easily just be like, use it as motivation, and be like, these guys are idiots. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, as much as you try to like block out the noise, it always finds you. Like mm-hmm. I don't go on my like Twitter like looking for these things, but when I'm back home in Canada, I'm watching Sportsnet or TSN, and all of a sudden in the middle of the highlights, they're like, "Oh, this guy wants to say who's going to thinks going to make the team," and it's like, "Well, it's right in my face. I'm not going to shut the TV off. I, mean, right. I want to kind of see, you know." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm never looking for it. Mm-hmm. But it does bother me when people you know chirp me or leave me off things or say I'm overpaid and stuff like that. It does bother me, but. I mean, all I can do is prove him wrong. And he's going to try to again this season. It's interesting. He talked about last year being one of his best years in a while, and we didn't get to see much of it. We paid so much attention to the North Division and everything that was going on in Canada. And the Kings, hey, for the first half of last year's 56-game schedule, they were a nice story. Oh, they're looking, they're competing for a playoff spot. Um, this might work out for them. And then they kind of faded away. Very few people watched LA Kings hockey last year. Like, very yeah. few people could give you a, an informed opinion on how good Drew Doughty was last season. No, but as you heard, yeah, he did have, I don't know if bounce back is the right word, but he had a good season last year. And I think that would that opinion would be backed up by even a lot of people who had started to, write off is too strong a word, but it started to kind of downgrade where they what they thought of Drew, Drew Doughty, right? I think even a lot of those people would say, you know what, he had a pretty solid year last year. If you ask right now Canadian hockey fans if he's on Team Canada, how many of them have him there? 20%? 15%? Yeah, something like something like that, probably. And this year is going to be interesting for him. I mean, obviously, there's the Olympic subplot, but you know, he's also going to get a lot more spotlight because he's going to be playing the Canucks and the Flames and the Oilers again. He's going to be traveling. He's going to make a visit to Toronto and Montreal. There's going to be more people watching, and the team should be better. The team should take that next step forward, or at least a lot of people are expecting it to do so. Might roll out a team like that quote. You never know when he comes to Vancouver if that's how it's going to go with Drew Doughty. But if you listen to the extended interview, and I encourage people to do when they have some time this weekend on 32 Thoughts, he talked about the fact that 
He has seen those Olympic projections. He's seen the fact that he's not on many of them and that he worked his ass off, his words, not mine, this summer so that he can have a great season, get off to a hot start, and put himself on that roster one more time. Yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting to hear a player be so open about using the negative negativity or perceived negativity in the media and from fans as fuel. And I think that happens probably more than we realize. But I like that Drew Doughty is just up front. Well, what? I'm watching. I'm a sports fan. I'm watching Sportsnet. I'm watching TSN. Am I supposed to just turn it off when they start talking about me? No, I'm gonna I'm gonna look. I don't go out searching for it. But if I see something, yeah, I'm gonna pay attention and I'm gonna try to use it. Based on what I'm seeing in the inbox. We've got a radio issue. We'll take a quick timeout. Hopefully we get things worked out. Streaming appears to be working, I would bet. We're going to play some Canuck commentary for you next. We've got audio rolling in from Abbotsford. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Stick tap right here to Suki in Richmond, who pointed out that Bad Motorfinger was released 30 years ago today, that being a Soundgarden album. You're hearing it right here. 91, great year for rock music. Suki going on, Jamie, to dig into the musical archives to bring us this fact as well, that A Tribe Called Quest, The Low End Theory, also released today, 30 years ago. What a day for music. That is, that's very, very impressive. Like, across genres, you bring A Tribe Called Quest into there, which, by the way, like, I love the shout-out. Low End Theory is a fantastic, fantastic album. What a day. Unbelievable. Man. There are a lot of people commenting on Canucks as bagels. I know yes, how we really got are. here. I know how we got here, but we didn't intend to get here. But that's where we got to. We got to comparing Canucks players with certain types of bagels. There's someone who doesn't want any more food talk. The majority of the listeners apparently are in on the bagel yes. talk as far as it concerns to the Canuck. Some people out on the peanut butter take. Other people advocating for the peanut butter all take. In. All in on the peanut butter We had tweets coming in saying that, yes, peanut butter on a sesame seed toasted bagel for the win. I agree with that 100%. I think that's great. Now, there are people actually, Jamie, deviating into the part where you're putting smoked salmon or smoked meat on a bagel. Folks, we're entering a different category when we get there. We're entering okay. a different category. We are. Come on, Jamie. We're entering a completely different category. Once we're talking about smoked meats going on bagels, now we're entering into a conversation about sandwiches as well, the crossover, where this sits in the Venn diagram. Right now, the conversation, if people want to comment, I think does need to be limited to bagels, overrated, underrated, what sits at the top of your rankings, and spreads. I think we need to limit it to that because once we start introducing meats, we're in an entirely different category. Well, what about like a smoked salmon spread then? You know what I mean? Like a this like qualifies a, a as a spread. Smokes- yeah, okay, that All qualifies right. as a because, spread. Because the the smoked salmon on bagel combination, and specifically smoked salmon with cream cheese, is an all time classic. So as long as we can just all agree on that, I'm fine putting it in its own category, I guess. Although I still think smoked salmon is so closely associated with a bagel that you kind of have to include it in the topping discussion. Kevin texting in, you might not realize it, guys, but you're on a slippery slippery slope towards a Halford & Bruff programming hour. Don't think they have food trademarked as of yet. I'm surprised no, that neither no. of them has texted in, but then when I realize it's a Friday, probably both smashed by now, I would think. It's, four hours <laughs> yes. since, it's almost four hours since their show ended. It's sunny outside. Yeah, 
probably they're probably well lit up by now, aren't they? I was gonna say if if we're um, on a slippery slope towards Halford and Bruff, does that mean we can do three hours instead of four as well? <laughs> is that is that in Let's the cards go. for us? Let's go. <laughs> Let's make that happen right now. We're gonna get a little help here from Luke Shen. People want to hear from some of those at Canucks camp. We have audio rolling in right now. Veteran defenseman who I think it's easy to forget. Jamie revived his career in Vancouver. There were many who thought Luke Shen would never play in the NHL again, couldn't crack the lineup down in Anaheim, ended up in Vancouver, got that taste of NHL hockey at the end of Quinn Hughes' first season. Next thing you know, he's off to Tampa. He's winning back-to-back cups. And while he wasn't a massive cog in that in that machinery down in Tampa Bay, he's got a couple of rings that he's coming back with. He got a new lease on his NHL life here in Vancouver, and he was asked today about being back part with an organization that he only spent a little bit of time with before. However long I was gone, I'm not sure the amount of uh, exact months or whatever, but it, it, it does feel great to be back. I know I wasn't here uh, a long time, you know, the first time around, uh, whatever it was, 20 games or so I played, um, you know, but it, it feels great to be back. It feels natural. It's it's something that's been on my mind, you know, since I left, actually, is just, uh, you know, maybe get the opportunity one day to come back, and whether or not it's in the cards, you, you really never know. Um I couldn't be more grateful and fortunate for the last couple of years I had in Tampa, obviously. But, uh, you know, it feels right being back here, and uh, I couldn't be more proud to, to be part of the Canucks organization. So how about how the stars aligned for you? It's absolutely wild. I mean, uh, you know, right at the time, actually, I finished off my the first go-around here in Vancouver, and after our season ended here, obviously, we didn't make the playoffs. And I, I followed my brother um, throughout the playoffs and went to game 5-6-7 when uh, – St. Louis is playing Boston and I was there for that game seven game when they won the cup and I was on the ice for them after uh, hugging hugging Braden and uh, you know all, all his teammates and seeing how special that was being a part of him winning the Stanley Cup and I was the, the proudest older brother in the world and um, you know next thing you know you end up in an organization like Tampa and you get the same uh, you, get, you get the same I guess um, feeling I guess that, that he got I mean uh, you know it's pretty special to, to do you know what your brother did and it's uh, our, our family's uh, pretty fortunate to be able to achieve that, and like you said, uh, it was it was an unbelievable couple of years in Tampa. But you know, um, like you said, the the stars aligned. I, I always did want to you know come back and play in Vancouver, and now I get to come back with that experience. Uh, you know, I'm really uh, grateful, and it's it's crazy if you look back the way that everything worked out. Talk about the pace and intensity of the camp. Do you feel like that helps set set the tone for the identity of the team? I think so. Oh, obviously, it's it's. Um, Every, every team's fast, every team plays intense, but I mean, you got to have that in, internally. Obviously, that's, you know, you got, it's got to set the tone. I guess it comes from, you know, the top down coaches, but then you got to have, you know, within that dressing room, guys, that's one thing I learned. Uh, you know, a lot of it comes from the coach, but a lot of it comes from internally in the players, and it can't always be from the same guys. Everyone's got to kind of step up and be pulling the same direction and hold each other accountable. So I think this is a really good start where, you know, guys are kind of figuring out what it takes, what some guys, what, uh, you know, their first NHL camp looks like, some guys first time in this organization, but you have that internal compete and intensity, and I think uh, it only makes everyone better. First time here, you uh, helped bring a young defenseman into the NHL in Quinn Hughes. Uh, you are now paired a lot with Jack Rathman out there in Charles. Uh, do you kind of enjoy that role of uh, mentorship and being that type of stay-at-home player that kind of fits with that style of player? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I try not to read obviously too much into deep pairings or line combinations right now. It's day two training camp. Obviously, we know 
That's one thing uh, through experiences you realize that things change in a hurry. But uh, there's no question that there's a lot of skill. Obviously, like you said, playing with Quinn when he first got called up to the NHL, um, he was incredible. I was I was blown away, and he hasn't slowed down at all. Obviously, and uh, is an elite defenseman in the, in the game now. And um, you know, obviously, Rathbone is a similar sort of player where you know. Very gifted offensively, a great skater, uh, great at moving the puck, and um, you know there's a lot of a lot of things uh, and, and similarities that those guys have. And um, like you said, uh, sometimes you know you get a guy like that who jumps up in the play and it's a it's a great skater. Sometimes it's a nice compliment to have uh, you know maybe a, a bigger guy beside him and help things in the D zone and uh, direct traffic that way. It's been a couple of years since you've been a full time like played every game. You got a role obviously in Tampa. Does the mentality ever change? Like, I mean, do you come here thinking like, I can still play an 82 game schedule and you're here to sort of prove that? Or like have the last couple of years changed your mindset in any way about, you know, where you stack up in the national hockey? No, I mean, obviously the goal is to be an everyday guy. Um, you'd be lying if you didn't if you didn't think that, or you probably wouldn't be in the situation where you'd want to get up in the rink, uh, come to the rink every day and, uh, you know, if you didn't have that mindset, um, obviously you always want to strive to be better. Uh, like we just talked about earlier, I've, I'm an older guy here, but in reality, 31 years old, it's still, you know, I, it definitely is like probably on the backside of your career, but by no means do I feel done. I actually, I feel better probably now than I did when I was 24, 25 years old and not just saying that. And I think, um, you know, sometimes you figure out ways in the game to think the game differently and uh, put yourselves in different situations on the ice where, you know, you, you didn't have that experience or knowledge kind of when you were younger. So there's different ways to kind of approach the game. That's that's what I've realized. Um, you know, in Tampa, arguably, or probably not even arguably, probably the best decor we had in the league the last couple of years. And, um, you know, big, heavy decor. And, you know, you're, you're trying to find roles and help the team win. And that's, that's kind of what, in reality, how you win is everyone kind of buys in and has a role. And there's no egos. It's kind of everyone has their... Uh, the role and, you, and uh, we're able to win, but there's no question that you want to help strive to to help the team here now and um, continue to push and get better. And like you said, uh, the goal is to always push yourself to the limits. So if you're satisfied with just being, uh, you know, an in and out guy, I, I I don't think that'd be a good thing. You mentioned that great decor in Tampa Bay. What did you learn from your time there with those players, working with those players? I think the biggest thing is. The way that everyone's committed to defending, I think uh, there's a lot of a lot of talk in the game these days um, with skilled offensive defensemen um, jumping in the play and transition game, which is obviously huge, and you know moving the puck, which is you know still a, a massive part of the game. But the biggest thing I learned is how those guys compete in the D zone. Um, that's what wins in, in reality. I think that's uh, the biggest thing that happened was, you know, instead of trying to outscore teams all the time, it was out defending teams. And, you know, all those guys from Hedman, McDonough, Sergachev, Chernak, I mean, the list goes on. It was an incredible decor, but the number one priority was defending, um, making sure that guys are winning battles in the corners, um, defending hard in front of the net, and making sure, uh, you know, Vasilevsky could see everything. People liked Luke Shen when he was here for the short stint before. Canucks fans had an appreciation for him, and they got more out of him than they thought they were going to. How much, if at all, differently do you look at Luke Shen now that he comes back with a pair of rings? I think it's it's that's. I think Canucks fans are still really going to like Luke Shen, right? Now that can always change based on what happens on the ice, and you know we know how easy it is in this town to become a whipping boy or to become the target for a lot of criticism. 
depending on what happens. But I think you just listen to that interview and he has such that he just has that calm veteran demeanor. Right. And so much of what fans liked about Luke Shen was the way he clicked with Quinn Hughes early in Quinn Hughes career. He just seemed to know exactly how to kind of shepherd Quinn Hughes into the NHL game. And it was really cool to see. And I think just listening to that interview, you get a sense of, Again, the calmness there. He understands his role. Yeah, he wants to push for more, but he knows exactly what's going to be asked of him, and he understands how to do it. And I think Canucks fans are going to like Luke Shen a lot this time around, too. I agree, and I actually think he's Teflon. I think he's Teflon. If he plays poorly in a game, he'll get criticized for that. But he goes to Tampa Bay. He wins a pair of rings. There's nothing to argue about there. And if things don't go particularly well with Luke Shen, what are people going to say? I guess he just didn't have any gas left in the tank. He's at the end of his career. And the criticism will actually get directed at Jim Benning for signing him to a second year. That's where it'll go. It won't be at Luke Shen, quite frankly. Well, and it'll also be... It's not his fault he's playing in that role in the lineup, right? If Luke Shen has to step up in the lineup at any point, you're right. Even if it doesn't go well, people will turn around and say, that's the fault of the Canucks for not having enough depth on the blue line. And that's a fair point to a certain degree, right? You put guys up in a position maybe where they shouldn't be playing in a lineup, you've got to expect certain results for that. I don't I don't know that I'd say he's entirely Teflon, right? Like if he's playing in a third pairing role and it doesn't go well, I think there's going to be some criticism directed at Luke Shen, but you're right that overall probably more will be pointed at Jim Betting. Okay, so if he's playing in a third-parent role, why is it? It's for one of two reasons. Somebody's been hurt or he's beaten out someone else who's signed to a higher-value contract. So, again, I think he escapes the criticism there. Not on a game-by-game basis. I think people evaluated the Canucks lose a game, somebody gets turnstiled a couple of times, they're hot, there's criticism in that moment. But from a macro point of view, the criticism will de- be devel- will be directed at, well, hold on a second. They signed this guy to a $2.5 million contract or a $3 million contract. Why is he not playing? What's his yeah. deal? Why, why is he even on the ice ahead of Tucker Pullman or Travis Hamannick? Isn't that a bigger condemnation of those two guys? You're right. And of all of those players, he's the least likely to turn into that kind of proverbial whipping boy for Canucks fans. You hear me say this all the time. Yannick Weber is one of the examples I use. He was with the Canucks, and ah, Yannick Weber, I mean, ah, whatever, no big deal. He can go somewhere else. Well, he goes to Nashville to a better decor, and he's playing on a pretty regular basis there. Luke Shen, I don't use it so much with Vancouver because people would have been fine if he came back. I use it more with Anaheim. Oh, I can't crack the Anaheim Ducks blue line. And yet he can be useful in Tampa Bay on a Stanley Cup winner in back-to-back years. If you put people in the right spots, it yep. can work. There's a lot of people, there are a lot of players who have reputations as not good enough that find the right role in the right organization, and it works out just fine. Thank you very much. Yeah, and I think Luke Shen, okay, now you're going again from a, from a great team, a, a fantastic team in Tampa Bay, to a team that we don't know where they're going to slot in the hierarchy with the Vancouver Canucks, but I think the role he's coming into play, which is basically to be the seventh defenseman, first guy up, if you ever need someone, certainly on the right side, who's going to get games just because of of the injury situation and all of that, that's kind of the perfect role for him to be in. And in that role, I think he's still going to impress and, and make a lot of Canucks fans happy. Keep those texts coming in. 
650-650, it's the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Sounds like we're just getting Travis Green audio in. We're running out of time on our show here today. No, that is not an homage to Jim Benning's comment with Tyler Toffoli. <laughs> we just literally are running out of time. So we will save that for Bick Nazar and Katie Caldwell. They're coming your way next. They will have plenty of Canucks content. We will save that audio for them. We just have a few minutes left in the show here, Jamie. We haven't really had an opportunity to look at the NFL weekend as it unfolds before us. We got game one last night. Panthers win. Not a terribly exciting game last night. Good night for Sam Darnold. Good night for Chuba Hubbard. Bad night for the Panthers on the injury front. And kind of an expected night for Davis Mills, who flashed at times, and the Houston Texans. If we just start to look through the games, and there are obviously more to compare on the morning slate, is there anything that takes a run at Chargers versus Chiefs for the most compelling game of the morning. Can you make a good case for any other game being the best game of the morning slate? And there's a bunch of them. No, not in terms of the quality of the two teams going at it. In terms of intrigue, Justin Fields getting his first NFL start, going up against a you know Super Bowl contender, a lot of people think, in the Cleveland Browns. That one's pretty interesting, but I don't know if it'll be as good a game as Chargers and Chiefs should be. I actually, despite Justin Fields being in that game and the Browns being a very good team, yeah, I'm interested in that. I think the better one is Saints-Patriots. That holds more intrigue for me, given how Jekyll and Hyde, the Saints, were in the first two weeks of the season. Patriots at home going up against what is supposed to be a pretty good defense. Mac Jones, a much taller order there than he had last week against the New York Jets. I think Saints-Patriots is an underrated game this weekend. I worry that one could be ugly, though. And I know some people hate. No for problem who? with a defensive struggle. Ugly for both teams. Okay. Right? Like if I got, we get, I got what if you we mean get bad. Yeah, if we get bad Jameis and the Saints defense shows up against a rookie quarterback, that one could turn into a bit of a rock fight, which, again, I know some people don't have any problem with that, but I don't know if that's going to be the most entertaining football game we ever see. Colts-Titans coming into the season, I would have said, okay, I might like to see that. Let's go. Yeah, I don't know. Carson Wentz, it has not looked very good with the Colts. Don't know if he's going to play this weekend with the two ankles that have been sprained. The Titans, they found themselves in the second half of that game against the Seahawks last week, but I'm not quite sure what I'm going to get from them. That one was more attractive three weeks ago to me than it is right now. And with Carson Wentz, you know, the report today, I believe, was he he was actually practicing, so there's a, a faint hope that he could suit up for the Colts, but I mean, even when he's been healthy, it's been kind of meh, and he has two sprained ankles, so I don't know what we're going to see him, and even if we did, I don't think it would mean all that much. This one feels, yeah, like it's just because of where the Colts are at and because of where Carson Wentz's health is at, it doesn't, it's not going to live up to the billing it might have before the season, and man, the Colts, all of a sudden, they're in danger, in very, very serious danger of going down 0-3, and I know we've talked, Scotty, about, okay, 0-2 is not the death sentence it used to be because you have that extra 17th game, 0-3 feels like a death sentence for the Colts. Not a very good division, so you're going to be able to clean up on a couple of teams, or so you would think in that division, though Houston's proving to be a little bit of a tougher out. But, yeah, 0-3 doesn't feel real good. I don't know if you're a Colts fan right now, based on what you've seen, if you feel good about the fact that Carson Wentz might play, or you'd rather see somebody else. <laughs> That's I'm a serious. very fair question. That's a very fair question. He just hasn't been very good. He's looked more like Philly Carson Wentz than he has looked like pre-injury Philly Carson Wentz, if, if you know what I'm getting at here. Pretty easy to see, despite what Seahawks fans will say, if you're looking at this from a macro lens, 
Bucks Rams is the matchup of the afternoon slate. No question. Yes. No, not even close. That's a fantastic, fantastic matchup. Matthew Stafford has been very, very good so far in his two games with L.A., but obviously a massive test with Tom Brady and the Buccaneers coming in. That's the game. That's the game of the week, right? Not just on Sunday. That's better than any of the primetime games this week, too. Seahawks-Vikings is an important game, and there's some pressure in that game for both of the teams, given what happened to the Seahawks in the second half last week, and the Vikings losing two close games that they probably feel they could have won. And they're 0-2 out of the gate. It feels like with primetime games now, either to just give them a check or an X. Packers 49ers is a check. Yes, absolutely. Do you have a, do you have a, a prediction as a 49ers supporter in that one, Scotty? Mm, I think 49ers win a close one. But I think it's going to be a really difficult game. Really difficult game. Bad news for the Packers on the injury front. They've got another issue at tackle. Dude who was filling in for David Bakhtiari, he looks like he's out this week, so Nick Bosa might need Yikes. a little bit. That's bad news yeah. for Aaron Rodgers, but Rodgers likes him some prime time. I think this is a really close game. Goes down to the wire. See what see what's available in the San Francisco backfield. News coming out today. Trey Sermon's practicing. Eli Mitchell practicing as well, though his health may be a little more up in the air than the rookie running back who was coming out of concussion protocol. He might get the lead carries this week. He might get the lead yep. carries this week, Trey Sermon. That it's uh, from where he was in week one. That's quite the quick turnaround for him. But you never know. You never know with Kyle Shanahan, though, right? I mean, even like we always talk about it with you can't predict who's going to get the carries in that backfield. But look at how they've used Brandon Ayuk so far this year, right? Like you never quite know who's going to get the ball in that offense. Really good point that you bring up. Really good game tonight. BC place. Lions, Rough Riders, battle for second place in the West Division. Lions riding a three-game win streak. It's National Truth and Reconciliation Night at BC place. Orange shirts will be handed out to the first 10,000 people who arrive with an indigenous version of the BC Lions logo. You've probably seen the pictures online. They look fantastic. Indigenous artists did the artwork. It's great. Awesome initiative. Looking forward to that game tonight. Jamie, I want to get this in before the end of the hour. The pandemic, you know this, I know this. It ends for no one until it ends for everyone. UNICEF is leading the procurement and delivery of 2 billion COVID-19 vaccines to countries around the world. An effort of this scale, it's never been done before. By donating to UNICEF Canada by September 30th, Canadians have the opportunity to make a difference and support the vaccination of millions of people in lower-income countries. Every dollar donated by next Thursday, September 30th, it will be matched by the Canadian government. Donate today at unicef.ca or text VACCINES to 45678 to donate $10. Roger Shergill, great week, buddy. Great job lining up the show. You did it again today. Enjoy your weekend. Greg Ballack in on a Friday. Doesn't always happen. Great music today. Big ups to Greg back at Mission Control. Jamie, the Blue Jays, they're looking to play their way into this wild card race this weekend as well. It's part of the sporting fair. Enjoy that game, Jamie. Enjoy the sunshine and sunshine yourself. Great week, my friend. Thank you. I'll enjoy try to enjoy some Ryder Cup as well if I can this weekend. I'm fired up for it. With a bagel. Have a bagel with that. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who sent in a bagel take. Or yes. other take today. We had a great response. Hope you had some fun on this Friday. I know we did. 650-650, the Dunbar Lumber text line. It remains open. Bick Nazar, Katie Caldwell up next. Enjoy your weekend, everyone. We'll talk to you on Monday.